Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the first chapter in Matthew. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the passage projected behind me here. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And if you're able, I would ask you to stand as I read God's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's the first Sunday of Advent, and I didn't grow up hearing about Advent or knowing what that meant. It's basically a um, fancy historical church way of saying it's Christmas time. So it's the first Sunday of the Christmas season, and I realized that the arrival of Christmas brings a range of emotions, probably affects everyone in this room a little bit differently. Students are excited about getting out of school and children are excited about presents. Parents are stressed about presents. And uh, there's a lot of excitement in the air, but also Christmas comes with a lot of baggage for some people. Uh, there are painful reminders of the past and hard interactions with family that we have to navigate. And there's a heightened sense of loss for so many who are grieving, um, who are heartbroken, who are lonely, and I, I feel that tension that probably in this room, there's, there's a mix of excitement and loss and conflicted feelings. But whatever you bring in this morning, the real story of Jesus being born is the object of all that's exciting about Christmas and the remedy of all that's difficult about this season. So uh, my wife, Brandy, and I, we have two kids. We have a seven-month-old named Jude, and other than he likes watching the lights on the tree, he's completely unaware of Christmas. But we have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter named Lucy, and this is the first year that she's really kind of understood Christmas, and she's so excited. And last weekend, we broke out the decorations and put the tree up and all that stuff. And of all the things that we unboxed, the thing that she was most fascinated by was this little nativity set. Um, by the way, she threw um, the shepherd under the couch and subbed in George, Peppa Pig's brother, for 
shepherd there. But um, <clears throat> Lucy, of course, when she saw these in the bag, thought that they were toys. And so she was pretty stoked. And uh, I started pulling out things one at a time. And like the, the actual like barn kind of structure, she, she said, that's a house. And then I pulled out this donkey and she said, unicorn. And then I pulled out um, this deer and she said, reindeer. I thought, well, okay, I can see that. And then I pulled out the angel and she said, fairy. Um, and then I pulled out one of the wise men and she looked at it and she said, I don't remember. Um, but Brandy and I were dying laughing at all the like weird things that she said were in this nativity scene. But then I realized that she wasn't saying anything that was really less far-fetched than the actual story. Um, I don't know if you've ever tried to explain the birth of Christ to a two-year-old, but when you break it down, it gets weird. Uh, so there's a man and woman and they aren't married, but they have a baby anyway, and it's baby Jesus. And Lucy knows about Jesus. We can say, who made the stars? Jesus. Who made Cookie Monster? Jesus. Um, so now Jesus is a baby. Who made his parents? Jesus. It gets weird. And then it's like, well, what's up with the unicorn and the reindeer? Oh, Jesus was born in a barn. Okay. Um, what's up with the guys with the crowns? Oh, those are wise men who came from far away and they brought gifts. Oh, what gifts did they bring? They brought gold and essential oils. Um, what does a baby want with gold and essential oils? Great question. Um, most of us have grown up with this story, but if you start to break it down, it kind of sounds like nonsense. And honestly, this story is a barrier to some people receiving Christianity as something valid to put their faith in. They're skeptics who can maybe get behind the ethical teachings of Jesus and maybe even some of the miracles, but a virgin birth, that's just too far. It insults our scientific sensibilities. But from the very beginning, the virgin birth was a part of the story. It wasn't an add-on that we can do away with if it feels intellectually embarrassing. We often recite the Apostles' Creed, which was written uh, at least in 390 AD. And it's basically a bunch of beliefs about what is fundamental to Christianity. And one of these beliefs is Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. If it feels like it may be too big of a stretch to put your faith in something that bizarre, then you're starting to feel some of what Joseph probably felt in real life 2000 years ago. Verse 18 begins this way. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. The Greek word for birth there is uh, Genesis. And you know that word. When you hear Genesis, you either think of a 70s prog rock band or you think of the first book in the Bible. And judging by the few laughs that I got from that, I'm guessing that you probably think of the first book in the Bible. Um, but what does Genesis mean? You probably know this. Genesis means beginning. And it's, it's called that because of the first line in Genesis, in the beginning. And if you have a Bible or a Bible app and you look up at the first verse in Matthew, we're in verse 18, look up at verse one, the very first verse, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
So the Greek word translated as genealogy there is that exact same word, Genesis. So uh, here's, a, here's a little tidbit of information that I find interesting and you might not find interesting, but even though the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, that was the language of the Israelites, right? By the first century, most of the Jews were reading the Old Testament in a Greek translation. In fact, most of the time when the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, they're quoting the Greek. And I'll tell you that because uh, when they read in Matthew, in Greek, that word Genesis, they're thinking the same thing we are. They go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Now consider this. Is it significant that the first book of the Old Testament starts with a Genesis story and the first book of the New Testament also starts with a Genesis story? Obviously, I think so. Um, look at verse 18 again. We'll, we'll read the whole thing. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. With child from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you think back in that Genesis story in creation, where was the Holy Spirit? In Genesis chapter one, verse two, it says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the Spirit. So from the very beginning, the Holy Spirit is there even in creation and everything is formless and void, and then the Holy Spirit brings something out of nothing. And where's the Spirit of God in Matthew? Bringing life into a womb that was void. Taking something that was void and creating the Savior of the world. So perhaps I'm reading too much into this and Matthew didn't intend all of that, but I think there's something there. Regardless, he goes from this big cosmic idea to something that's very earthy and practical in verse 19. It says, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So whatever big cosmic thing is happening with Mary, Joseph's thinking very practically, right? And verse 18 tells us that Mary is betrothed to Joseph which means engaged to be married. That's kind of an old fashioned sounding word, but we still understand that to mean engaged. But one verse later, Matthew refers to Joseph as Mary's husband. And it doesn't say Joseph resolved to break up with Mary quietly. It says he resolves to divorce her quietly. So let me just take a minute to clear up the weirdness there. In ancient Jewish culture, if you were betrothed, it was a legal agreement that was usually arranged between the father of the bride and groom. It was a legal contract. And there's a lot we don't know about Joseph and Mary. We don't know if they knew each other before they were betrothed. We don't know if they were in love. We don't know if they even wanted to be married. But what we do know is that they were betrothed, which meant they were legally bound to be married, but not yet living together. Once a couple was betrothed, the husband would prepare a place for his bride. And often this would mean the husband would go build an addition on to his father's house so that he could bring his wife 
to, to live with him. Once the house was ready, which usually took at least a year, they'd have the wedding and the husband would take the wife home to live with him and consummate the marriage. Now, if you understand this context, it should bring certain passages, certain things that Jesus said to life. In John chapter 14, listen to what Jesus says. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus is using wedding imagery. He's using the imagery of betrothal, and he's talking about going to prepare a place in his father's house to take his bride, which is us, the church. And of course, the end of our Bible ends with a great wedding feast. So it all ties together. So that's what the idea of betrothal meant for Joseph and Mary. And to break the engagement was a big spiritual and legal deal on par with what we think of as divorce. But verse 19 tells us basically that Joseph was a good guy and he didn't want to bring Mary to public shame because according to the Old Testament, Mary could have actually been stoned to death for this, what seemed like an act of adultery. But you know what that means? It means that Joseph didn't believe that this child was from the Holy Spirit. And you have to wonder, would you? Because up to this point, we've been talking about it very matter-of-factly, like, yep, that's the story, that's the text, that's the ancient culture, got it, got it, got it. But I really want to ask you to try to see this story through the eyes of Joseph. And we have a picture of Joseph if you want to see what he looks like. There's, there's Joseph. Try to see it through his eyes. Now, for some reason, uh, the Joseph in our nativity set has white hair and a long beard, but it's more likely that Joseph would have been a young man, probably around 18. So imagine you're a young man starting your own grown-up life and you're excited about being married and having your own place to live and someday starting a family, but you find out your fiance's pregnant and you know that you haven't done anything to get her pregnant. Can you imagine what you would feel? We don't know what Mary told Joseph or if she told him anything at all, but can you imagine that conversation? Joseph, I know what you're thinking. Don't worry, I'm still a virgin. Uh, Holy Spirit got me pregnant and I'm having the son of God. Okay, okay, Mary, so your Holy Spirit got you pregnant. You're having the son of God. Either you think I'm stupid or you're delusional, right? That, that's probably what we would think. And think of how you'd feel. I mean, you're in a dilemma. If you follow through with the marriage, either you tell people the baby's not yours and you subject your fiance to public shame and possibly some sort of abuse, or you say nothing and everyone thinks that you're the reason your fiance is pregnant. You'd be hurt and confused. You'd feel rejected and disappointed and it'd be like everything you've been excited about and working toward is just trashed but you're not a bad guy and you don't want to make anything harder for Mary than it's already going to be. 
So as hurt as you are, you resolve in your own mind to divorce her quietly. Can you feel the tension now? Today, for Advent, we lit the peace candle and we've got this nice baby Jesus story. But if you really put yourself in Joseph's shoes, it doesn't feel like a story of peace at all, does it? But the turning point comes in verse 20. Let's read. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So an angel now confirms to Joseph the thing that Mary has presumably told him that Mary is indeed pregnant and that the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And who is this angel? We've got a picture of an angel. Uh, I have a feeling this is, I mean, this is the angel that went to the shepherds. Could have been the same angel. Who knows? Um, Lucy thinks it's a fairy. Anyway, but verse 20 tells us it's an angel of the Lord. And the phrase angel of the Lord is used a lot throughout the Bible. And it shows up in stories that you know pretty well. So remember Moses in the burning bush? Do you know who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? It was the angel of the Lord. Or do you remember when Abraham took his son Isaac up on the mountain and was going to sacrifice him? But someone stopped him. Do you remember who? It was the angel of the Lord. Or maybe you remember Balaam and his animal, his donkey. He was abusing his donkey because it kept stopping in the road. But the donkey saw something that Balaam couldn't see. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord. So Joseph is a young Jewish boy who's grown up hearing uh, stories from the Torah and probably even had much of it memorized. So he knows well historically what it means when the angel of the Lord shows up. And there's still a lot of mystery about who exactly the angel of the Lord is. But a few things are clear. One is that it was a holy encounter. And there's never any doubt in the mind of the person who's having this encounter, who they're talking to. And the angel of the Lord speaks the very words of God. So this would definitely, definitely have Joseph's attention. So now listen to what the angel of the Lord said to Joseph. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this may be the most important part of the whole story. The angel told Joseph that Jesus will save his people from their sins. We've got a picture of baby Jesus too. There's baby Jesus. Um, so he'll save his people from their sins. Who are his people? It would be easy to presume that when it says he'll save his people, it means the Jews. But at the first part, of Matthew, it's given this long genealogy for 17 verses. And in that genealogy, you find not just Jews, but you find men and women and Jews and Gentiles, and they're all sinners and they're all in need of a savior. That's why they need saving. But who are his people? All kinds of people, all kinds of sinners who need saving. 
But let's talk about the name Jesus. Why the name Jesus? In Greek, the word is Jesus. Jesus. And you can probably hear from the Greek how it got to Spanish and you hear Jesus, right? Um, English is just kind of a weird language. I don't know how we got to Jesus from Jesus, but we did. But Jesus is actually a Greek version of a Hebrew name. Now follow me because it's a little dorky, but it gets cool. So Hebrew name is Yehoshua, where it's sometimes shortened to Yeshua. Yehoshua is where we get the name Joshua. So Joshua was a fairly common Jewish name, and it was common in part because of a famous Joshua in the Old Testament. Now, I wonder if you remember what the famous Joshua in the Old Testament did. And I know that if you're part of the women's Bible study, you know, because you went over it a couple of years ago and learned it probably better than I know. But Joshua was famous because he was the successor of Moses and he led the Israelites into the promised land. But here I want to remind you that these first century Jews were probably reading that story of Joshua in Greek. And so they're reading Jesus, Jesus led people into the promised land. And here an angel of the Lord comes to announce the birth of the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. Is it significant? I think so. But it gets even better and even dorkier. So the Hebrew word Yehoshua means Yahweh saves. You with me? Yahweh is the divine name of God. In our Old Testament, it's usually translated as the Lord, but Yahweh is the divine name of God. Joshua, Yehoshua, means Yahweh saves. So let's look at verse 21 again, but we're going to sub in the meaning of Jesus' name. This is what verse 21 says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. I want you to get this. Who saves? Yahweh saves. But who's going to save the people from their sins? Jesus. So who is Jesus? Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. It's right here in the very first chapter of the story. And then in verses 22 and 23, Matthew goes on to say this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So he is quoting from Isaiah chapter 7 here to ground what is happening in a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And he's saying the virgin will give birth. That matches up. But in Isaiah 7, the child's going to be named Emmanuel. So this seems to be incongruent, right? Well, why would we name this child Jesus when in Isaiah 7 it says it's going to be Emmanuel? I think the angel of the Lord is talking about what their names mean, not the actual names. Because the story of the birth of Jesus is the story of the coming of the Messiah, whose name is Yahweh saves and God with us. The very last line of the book of Matthew, after Jesus' death and burial 
and resurrection, do you know the very last line, the very last thing he says to his followers? He says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God with us. Jesus is Yahweh saves. Jesus is God with us. God with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I seriously doubt that Joseph uh, could have possibly put all that together at the time. But we do know that something about the encounter with the angel of the Lord changed Joseph. And we know this from the last two verses. It says, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. After this encounter, he did not <clears throat> divorce Mary quietly. He took her to be his wife and he named the child exactly what the angel told him. And I want you to think about what that must have cost Joseph. It must have hurt his pride on some level because he couldn't really say, hey guys, quit whispering about us. It's, it's the son of God, okay? Like that's, that's not the kind of thing you can say when your fiance is pregnant, right? And I, I just think, when Jesus was born, there must have been this huge range of emotions. Like, for one thing, he's probably stressed out by the ordeal of not having a place for her to give birth that's like clean anywhere that you would want to be. But as the wise men arrive and the shepherds and there's the star and the gifts, like, I think he probably was sense, filled with a sense of awe, but probably a sense of relief, not just that Mary and Jesus are okay, but that he didn't dream all of this up because I'm sure the whole time there was a little bit of doubt. Like, this is weird, right? But I also imagine he felt unsure of his place because this wasn't his kid. Mary was the one who was chosen. How do you, how do you be a father to the Messiah? He's just a poor carpenter. In so many ways, he's just like you and me. And this is what I mean. Joseph was faced with an unbelievable story. And so are you. And so am I. A fiance pregnant with the son of God. That sounds made up and ridiculous. And to Joseph, you got to think, first century Roman Empire. If you've ever studied Greek and Roman mythology at all, you probably remember that there are all kinds of stories about a God and a human having a baby. So you remember Hercules? Yep. Zeus for a dad, human for a mom. But also Plato and Alexander the Great were alleged to have had gods for fathers. But most significantly, Caesar Augustus, who was the first emperor of Rome, first Caesar of Rome, he was Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth, claimed to have been the son of the god Apollo. So, if you have faith, you know that God is doing something sneaky and subversive in showing the Roman Empire who the real son of God is and who the real king is. But if you're skeptical, it sounds like Mary was just cooking up a story from the myths of the pagan empire. And if you're skeptical of the virgin birth, it may just sound like these were legends created by uneducated people to prop up their religious beliefs. But then, 
Joseph had a holy encounter. An angel of the Lord confirmed what was sounding impossible and implausible. And though it would be incredibly costly to Joseph, it was really, really good news. But the encounter all took place in a dream. Do you get that? He couldn't prove that this happened. No one else witnessed it. Even though this encounter changed his mind and his heart and the entire trajectory of his life, he couldn't prove that it really happened to anyone. And neither can we, not definitively. Anyone who's ever believed in Jesus knows that it was not simply looking at data and making an informed decision. Just like Joseph had an encounter, a holy encounter with the angel of the Lord, none of us come to Jesus apart from the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts and giving us the beautiful gift of faith. The same Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters when all was formless and void, the same Holy Spirit who brought forth life in Mary's womb is the one who opens our eyes to see the truth and the hope and the beauty and the glory of the gospel. Because apart from all that, it sounds like foolishness. But after this encounter, Joseph changed his mind and he also changed the entire course of his life. If you're a follower of Jesus, there was a point and probably multiple points along the way that something happened. Your mind changed. Your heart was changed. Something happened that you can't prove and that you can't even really explain. And I'm asking you to look back on those moments in your life without cynicism without chalking up things to, well, I was just young then, that was 40 years ago, or I was just caught up in emotion. But look back at those moments and remember the awe and wonder for this person named Jesus. And I imagine as Joseph got older and the grind of raising kids and working a job and trying to keep all the plates spinning, it started to wear on him. And there were days that he questions all of these things. But he always had that dream, that encounter with the angel of the Lord to look back on. And maybe he couldn't explain it or even remember all that was said, but it reminded him that it was real. If you look at this Christmas story with the angels and the virgin birth and the son of God and all this stuff, if you look at it with skepticism, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move your heart to believe in what the apostle Paul called the foolishness that's preached to save those who believe. Joseph was faced with an unbelievable story, but he had a holy encounter, and after that, it changed everything. May the same be true for each of us. And as Advent begins and Christmas draws near, it stirs up different things in each one of us. May Jesus eclipse the traditions of men. We lit the peace candle today not because our situation seems particularly peaceful right now, but because Jesus has come and God is with us. And through Jesus, we may have the peace that surpasses all understanding. As I close, I want to tell you a story that many of you have heard, a brief story of a man who had an encounter with Jesus in Mark chapter nine. It was a man 
who desperately wanted Jesus to heal his son. And he said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And the father responded, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. If you have just a mustard seed of faith, say it with me this morning. I believe, help my unbelief. If you find the story of Jesus compelling, but you stumble with all the facts, you have a hard time reconciling all of the story, I still encourage you to say it with me. I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord God, help our unbelief. We believe in science, which demands that we can observe and retest and observe things in order for them to be true. But it is impossible for us to retest or observe creation from nothing. It's impossible to retest a virgin giving birth. It's impossible to retest resurrection and ascension. So Lord, this must either mean that it's not true or that you have done something truly extraordinary through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in each of our hearts, wherever we are on the spectrum of faith, if we're all in or if we're still checking it out, help our unbelief. We ask all this in the blessed name of Christ. Amen.